Welcome to C's for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. All right, welcome back to another episode of C is for Creepy. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Yes. Um, so ex- it comes out on Valentine's yes. Day. Yes. <laughs> is that this one? Yeah, that's this one. Because last week was the... You're right. Yes. So... Okay. Wow, this is the Valentine's Day episode. I feel really bad about it. I wish I had planned this better. Well, here we are. All right. So once again, thank you to everybody for listening. We love seeing all of the support. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you guys want to send any stories, email us at c4creepy at gmail.com. We love seeing anybody who reaches out, even if you just want to say hi. Yes. Um, we also have a link on our website, right, to yeah. send in yeah, we stories? Have- contact page so you can submit your stories on our website as well yes so please make sure to reach out we would love to know that we're not just talking to each other um and let's go forward what is your case today so this week i am pairing f with firefighter arson Ooh, okay yes. so this is a reoccurring phenomenon where those who join the fire department start fires. While the vast majority of firefighters take their duty with the utmost seriousness, this does still occur, and honestly, more often than you would think. Because it's like a god complex. Kind of, well, sometimes God, so it, it's known as hero syndrome, and I'll get to that in a couple seconds here. Okay. Okay. So, a report was published in 2016 titled, Report on the Firefighter Arson Problem, which, like, that's a pretty on-the-nose title, if you ask me. Yep, I would agree. I mean, you get the point. Um, It documented that in the year 2008, there was 104 firefighters arrested for arson. Wow. Yeah. The data presented indicates that this particular arsonist type of arsonist has been increasing. This research indicated that although examples of fire-starting firefighters date back to the 1800s, there has been an increase of cases since the late 1990s. However, since there is no national or international database tracking firefighter firebugs, um, it's difficult to understand the full scope of the issue. Mm-hmm. So, like, It's pretty much up to uh, individual jurisdictions to track and document that. So some areas take that very seriously and other areas seem to think that there isn't a problem that needs to be addressed. Okay. So it's, it's difficult, but it does happen. So while it is possible that a few of these people who have sworn to put fires out might be suffering from pyromania, that is not the typical pathology in these cases. There is also the possibility that an individual might derive pleasure from the thrill of risky behavior. Um, there's also the belief that these arson arsonists lack impulse control. The vast majority of these firefighter arsons have what is known as a hero complex, 
The arson would start the fire, most likely in an abandoned building or field, wait for the fire to be reported, then arrive on scene to quench the blaze. Repeat offenders are known to start with small fires in isolated areas, but then escalate to bigger fires in higher stakes areas. So, once again, like, wow, you put out this little fire, but let's continue to build that brush. Let's get more, let's make them higher stakes. Uh Which is very dangerous when lives are a possibility, you know? Uh Okay. In the 1990s, the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit released the profile of who the firefighter arson could be. Like, just, like, as a general profile. Okay. Okay. Of course, this list is not going to be correct every time, but it is still interesting. The FBI posited that the suspect would be a white male aged 17 to 25 with a dysfunctional childhood and a bad relationship with their parents. Specifically, a cold relationship with their father. Okay. So, daddy issues. Mm-hmm. Um, they would lack stable interpersonal relationships and would join the fire department for the thrill and excitement versus for public service. While the arsonist would have an average to higher intelligence, they would most likely suffer from alcoholism, depression, borderline personality disorder, or have suicidal tendencies. So that's a broad... Very broad. ...profile of what a firefighter who commits arson would be. Okay. Okay. So now on to my case. I am going to be covering John Orr. So born in... Born on April 26, 1949, John Leonard Orr was one of three boys. Right after high school, Orr joined the U.S. Air Force and then in and was in basic training in 1967. He was stationed overseas in Spain and relocated later to Montana. Orr was honorably discharged in 1971. After leaving the military, Warren moved with his wife to Los Angeles, California, and applied for jobs at two different police departments and two different fire departments. So he very clearly wanted to be a first responder mm-hmm. in some case. High stakes first responder, I should say. All right. While Orr was invited to test at one of the police departments. He was found unfit for the position after the poli- with the police after failing the psychological test. That's never a good sign. Not really. Um, this did not dissuade Orr as he was accepted to test for the Los Angeles Fire Department. Unfortunately, Orr struggled with the physical test, so he was rejected there as well. He refused to give up. He, like, worked odd jobs, went to university, and eventually he applied with the Glendale Fire Department and got a position. And it should be noted that at the time, the Glendale Fire Department was kind of um, bottom tier, if you will. Like, they had the lowest documented wages out of all of the departments in the area. Um, Probably not the best funded. So... Okay. Either way, he's getting to live his dream. He, um... Gotta start somewhere. He did. And actually, what's really interesting, I don't know how this came about, but he 
was licensed to be a arson investigator with this department. So um, he also knows what they're looking for. Yes. Nice. Um, he's also was known as like super like enthusiastic about his position. He um, he rose through the ranks and actually became the fire department captain of wow. Glendale Fire Department. Okay. So, Orr was known to be the first firefighter on the scene. He seemed to always know exactly where the fire hydrants were and what the best method methods were used to put out each fire. Hmm. He also had a knack for finding the causes of all the fires he investigated. This, of course, was because Orr was living a double life as an arsonist known as the Pedal Pyro. What? <laughs> okay. So he, this arsonist was known as the Pillow Pyro because of the method that they used to start fires. What Orr would do is set his fires using an incendiary time device, which was a lit cigarette with a book of matches wrapped inside a piece of paper with cotton and bedding, which was secured with rubber bands. The cigarette would burn down, catch the matchbook on fire, and that would catch the paper and the bedding and like all the fabric and stuff ablaze. And he would target stores or like specific areas that had like either extremely flammable foam products or bedding or dried flowers. Okay. Um, catch quickly. Okay. He was oh, he was known to drop these fire starters in busy stores midday. Oh, <gasps> yeah. Like we're not talking about abandoned like, store for the night. No, or um, even like out in the middle of the field or you know low stakes areas. He from the get go picked very high stakes areas to target. Jesus. Okay. He would also set, however, smaller fires in grassy hillsides, so that would spread the fire department thin and ensure that he would be on the same scene of the higher stakes fires. That would be very time-consuming. I agree. Like, that's a lot of effort for the notoriety. Yeah. Well, also, if you set a little bushfire... We all know that that can turn into, like, setting a whole fucking province on fire, but... Well, I mean, look at... That wasn't that long ago, the California forest fires. That was, like, two years ago. Yeah. And that was because of a um, gender reveal. Yeah. Yeah. So, that burnt down, like, a good portion Mm -hmm. of the city. Okay. Like, that... You know, I understand the notoriety, but you could seriously affect millions of people. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Okay. So while it's not known exactly when or began setting fires, the first major arson case from the Pillow Pyro was when a Ole's Home Center hardwood store located in South Pasadena went up in flames in 1984. The fire destroyed the building and it claimed four lives. Holy shit. 
They were Ada Deal, age 50, her two-year-old grandson, Matthew Troll, yeah, Trolley, um, and two employees of the store, six, 26-year-old Caroline Krauss and Jimmy Centina, 17. How do you live with yourself? We'll get to it. The day after the devastating fire, arson investigators from Southern California, like, they were like, okay, the cause of this fire had to be electrical. Well, or argued, saying that this fire was arson. He was also found to be correct, as the fire originated in an area where polyurethane foam products were kept. As these were extremely flammable, they would have caught quickly and the flame would have spread, like, so fast. Why wouldn't you let them think that this was an accident? Because he wants the notoriety. On both ends. Yeah, he wants to be infamous and famous. He wants that life as the pillow pyro to be talked about and, like, feared while he comes in and saves the day. Jesus. It's so wild. Yeah. I don't think that his ego, too, could handle if one of the fires he set was deemed accidental. Yeah. Um, this was not the only fire, as two months after, another suspicious fire was set at a different Olay's hardware store in the foam padding section. Poor Olay's. Right? Just try it like that. that could you imagine if both of our Home Depots just went up in flames or Canadian Tires? I'd be more sad about Canadian Tire, honestly. Oh, I, I'd be sad either. Like, <laughs> honestly, I love a good home. Home Depot? Yeah, I love a good home DIY store. This is true. Okay, in 1987, several suspicious fires were set in Bakersfield, California. One of the fires was set at a Craft Mart store. It seems like he's personally targeting us. We both love home. <laughs> we love craft stores. <laughs> I'm feeling personally attacked. Right? <laughs> he's going after what? The ladies who are done partying and they just sit at home doing DIY things. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. Let me guess. It was in the yarn section. It wasn't. It was in dried flowers. Oh. But that would have worked, too. Either way, very flammable stores. No, this is why they don't sell dried flowers anymore. You have to get the plastic ones. You know, I'm sure that those are still fairly flammable. No, they melt. Yeah, but still then, like, can you imagine, like, the dripping hot plastic and stuff. Like, if if the tops of it, which are fabric still, if those caught, then you've got, like, a perfect wick. Like, a candle almost. No, but, like, the um, the material the flowers are made out of just melts. Oh, okay. See, I haven't lit any of them on fire recently. Oh. I wouldn't know. <laughs> like, I'm sure there is some form of material that does catch on fire, but most of them just melt. Well, I'm glad that we've gone away from actual dried flowers. Dried flowers are nicer. Not gonna lie. And then they, like, reuse the single-use flower. And then you can keep them later for potpourri. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. It's his fault. Fucking pillow pyro over here. Right? Okay. So, uh, it was at this crime scene in a bin of dried flowers that investigators found substantial evidence. Hmm. A yellow piece of paper was found. Wrapped inside was three matches wrapped around a cigarette butt. 
An incendiary timing device. Nobody smelled the cigarette. It's the 80s. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, like, that probably was the norm. Fair. Everything smelled like cigarettes. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just thinking, like, since I pretty much quit smoking, I can smell someone smoking in their car from down the block now. Mm -hmm. I'm like, holy shit. So, it's weird thinking that that would be normal. Mm-hmm. This is better times. Okay. So forensics were able to find a partial print on the piece of paper, but there was no match to anyone in the criminal database. That same day, though, the pillow pyro targeted a fabric store with the fire originating from a bin holding pillows and foam rubber. Motherfucker. Right? Again, personally targeted. Yeah. There were multiple more fires set between Bakersfield and Fresno over a period of time that just so happened to be a arson investigator convention in Fresno. Two years later, in 1989, between March 3rd to 9th, another string of fires were set. The only difference is that the fires were set between Los Angeles and Pacific Road. There also happened to be a four-day symposium arson conference in Pacific Road during that time as well. So Captain Marvin Case believed that the arsonist was a fire investigator after looking at the dates and locations of the fires and how they both coincided with these conferences. Give this guy a cookie. He's on to it. Nobody really took him seriously, though. Mm-hmm. When comparing the list of the attendees from both conferences, only ten names were the same. All ten people's fingerprints were compared to the one found at the scene, but there was not a match at that time. And that is because it was a partial print. Um, the fingerprint technology was, like, just kind of really starting... Mm-hmm. So, no match. Okay. There will be a match. Oh. Yet. Okay. So, in late 1990, early 1991, another rash of fires broke out, this time located around Los Angeles metropolitan area. Police formed a task force called the Pillow Pyro Task Force <laughs> in order to catch the arsonist. A profile of the arsonist was sent out to smaller cities that surrounded Los Angeles because they were likely less funded. They would not have a arson investigator of their own. Mm-hmm. From there, the lead investigator of this task force was put in touch with Captain Casey, who told the task force of his suspicions and gave the fingerprint evidence for further testing. The police ran the fingerprint through their database of people who applied to work for them. Hmm. Lo and behold, there was a match. John Orr. Since Orr was only linked to one of the fires, investigators decided to track Orr using a teletrack tracking device, which they installed in his car. Okay. Okay. Investigators saw the tracking device place Orr on the set near the Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank, California, California, where a fire broke out on one of the sets. Or drove home from the studio, received the official dispatch there. 
What's really interesting is that the dispatcher actually gave him the wrong address for where the fire was. Oh. But he still made it to the scene of the fire. Oh. So once that happened, they're like, okay, we gotta get this guy. Like, obviously, he is not safe to track and just follow and wait for more evidence to come up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was enough for a warrant to search Orr's home and car where police found cigarettes, rubber bands, and binoculars. They also found yellow lined paper in his car. Videotapes were found which contained before and after footage of some of the buildings that the pillow pyro targeted. So this proved that the houses and buildings were specifically chosen so Orr would film or photograph them before while they were still intact, and then again while they were burning down. Shit. Which is so fucked up. Like, that's just another way to relive... Yep. ...your... Well, trophies. Yeah. It's just... Ugh. I, I could not imagine losing my house in a fire, let alone knowing that someone intentionally started it, like, because they wanted to be a hero or to get off on it, like... Gross. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, that's disgusting. So most disturbingly, a manuscript titled Point of Origin was found, written by Orr, and it was about a fireman who was an arsonist. I love me a good manuscript. Well, Orr used details from the fires he started, including, in this manuscript, was a hardware store being set on fire using a slow-burning incendiary device which claimed the lives of a number of people, including a grandmother and her two-year-old grandson, which... Vile. Exactly, that's what happened. So here's a couple direct quotes from the manuscript. So these might offer some insights into or Crazy Town, okay. Yeah. So, quote, Oh, I should note that the main character is named Aaron in this. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to say Aaron. Quote, Aaron wanted the Cal's fire to be called arson. He loved the inadvertent attention he derived from the newspaper coverage and hated when he wasn't properly recognized. Oh, okay, so we got some narcissism. Okay, here's a second quote. To Aaron, the smoke was beautiful, causing his heart rate to quicken and his breath to come in shallow gasps. He was trying to control his outward appearance and look normal to anyone around him. He relaxed and partially stroked his erection, watching the fire. End quote. <laughs> I had to read it. You had to hear it. Oh, my God. That's like I'm putting that on a shirt. I always do this to you. <laughs> I fucking vile. <laughs> I don't understand the mental place you have to be to do this, reap the benefits from both ends, and then write that shit. Right? Like, keep that shit to yourself. He was actually um, sending this manuscript to publishers when he was arrested. Like, he wanted this book that he wrote to be published. And I think that that part of that, too, was to feed his ego, that he could write such specific details about his own crimes distribute it, make money off of it, and continue being this investigator. Jesus. Like, 
the amount of layers that this man wanted fame and recognition. Okay. Yeah. Ugh, gross. I resent you for that one. I could have went my entire life and never, never heard those words. Oh, you know I'm going to have more for you eventually. I know. Okay. Moore was found guilty of three counts of arson on July 31st, 1992. I'm going to be really honest with you. This is a convoluted way that he was sentenced. He had multiple trials. Okay. I'm just going to try and get through them quickly. The Coles notes? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. In 1993, Orr accepted a plea deal where he pled guilty to three more counts of arson that would see him paroled from federal federal prison in 2002. So these first two counts were all at a federal level. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in 1994, uh, the state prosecutors indicted or on four counts of first-degree murder and 21 counts of arson for fire started in 1984 to 1991. Jesus. First charge at a federal level, now he's being charged at the state level. Okay. Okay. The lead prosecutor wanted to ensure that at minimum or would not leave prison, so he actually pushed for the death penalty and offered, like, hey, if you plead guilty, we'll take that off the table. Mm-hmm. But Orr refused, went to trial. Um, he was found guilty for everything except for one count of arson. Wow. He did not receive the death penalty, as in California, the vote was had to be unanimous, and I think it was, like, eight to four in favor. So Okay. The judge then sentenced... Him to four concurrent life sentences without parole for murder and an additional 21 years in prison. Jesus. Or began serving his state, his state sentence after his federal sentence was up in 2002, where he still is to this day. Good. Orr's, John Orr's fires cost millions of dollars of property damage and claimed the lives of four people, which, to be frank, I am surprised that it was only four. Yeah. It is estimated that he set around 2,000 fires in a seven-year span. Well, yeah, because the big ones were being distracted by the little ones that he... Well, it's not even that. It was also determined that when Orr was arrested, the number of brush fires in the surrounding area went down by 90%. Oh my god. Like, 90%. That is an insane amount of fires. Yeah. That were caused by one man. I'm surprised that he, like, there was nothing that I could find that he would, like be sued for any of these property damage dollars that because like we're talking tens of millions of dollars if not more from the houses the building the agriculture yeah that's wild resources that went into putting these fires out holy shit that's insane right two thousand fires in seven years Mm -hmm. that's like one a day it's a lot of fires. I, I, like, that is so much. I can't imagine what he was spending on smokes. 
Well, you'd only need about like a pack and a half a month. And if he smoked already. I guess, but holy shit. Mm hmm. That's fucking wild. Well, thank you. I'm glad you like that case. Ish. All right, so what is your F story? Okay, so I did not understand the assignment. I know. I fell down a rabbit hole. And let me preface this with my F is for forest. All right. And I found the forest of horror. And me being the paranormal person I am, I'm like, oh, girl, this got to be good. It It is good. And I think it's really important to like bring it to light because you know what? There's tons of people here that need this to be brought out. But I definitely have a full crime story for you. Okay. And it does not have a happy ending. Okay. So I, I apologize. You do you get two crime stories today. Yay! All right. Treat. <laughs> yeah, I fell down a rabbit hole. And by the time that I realized that there was absolutely no paranormal to this, we had written almost the entire story. And then I was like... Sometimes there's a point of no return. Y- y- yes. Yes. Like, we are on five full pages of holy balls to the wall. I'm, well, I'm excited for Courtney to <laughs> a crime case. It's got to be good. Yes. So today we will be discussing the Ibadan Forest of Horror. Okay. Also known as the Ibadan House of Horrors, or Soka. It was a dilapidated building believed to have been used for human human trafficking and ritual sacrifice located in the Soka Forest in Ibadan, Oyo State, Nigeria. Okay. The building was discovered on March 22nd, 2014 by a group of motorcycle taxi drivers who had formed an impromptu search party after the disappearance of a local driver in the area, leading to the horrific discovery of the Forest of Horror. It started with some missing people. In 2014, motorcycle taxi riders in Ibadan in Oyo State, Nigeria, had several of their of their numbers vanish without a trace. Oh my god. Although there were no outward evidence of any sort of foul play, there had been spotted mysterious strangers lurking around the area at the time, and it did not take long at all for the superstitious people to start whispering of cultist kidnapping people for their dark rituals. This wasn't seen as an unreasonable idea here, as Nigeria was no stranger to ritual killings with some high-profile cases of bodies turning up with missing limbs. Uh Disemboweled or otherwise mutilated in grisly fashion. So these rumors sparked fear among the locals. Police were notified, but reportedly were uncooperative, refusing to investigate further and saying that the men had just run off. Okay. As the disappearances continued in the area, there was still no official response until motorcyclists went missing around the Soka Forest, and a group of concerned citizens went searching for him. They claimed that they had heard someone crying out for help from the trees, and the group went went about investigating the forest, where they stumbled across a macabre festival of horrors. Oh my god. Fanning out through the area, they found a dilapidated, seemingly abandoned building Tucked away amongst the trees, which emanated a horrible stench. Oh no. Upon entering the building, they were met with a charnel house of horrors and the ghastly sight of decomposing human corpses, which had 
apparently been bound with chains. As shocked, they called the police, and the police expanded their search and began turning up human remains in the surrounding area. Many of these people had been butchered upon blood-soaked butcher slabs. In some cases, they were still chained to the slabs. Oh my god. There were also numerous human remains found scattered within the wilderness itself, stuffed within bushes in the nooks of trees, or unceremoniously dumped into holes in the ground or into the surrounding caves. The corpses and remains were in various states of decomposition, many of them missing limbs or internal organs, some of them even without their heads. In total, over 20 decomposed human bodies and hundreds of human skulls were found in the forest. And there was also found a building eerily full of personal belongings of victims, including wallets, clothes, jewelry, travel bags, footwear, driver's license, passport photos, and children's toys. Oh my god. Yeah. So in addition to the dead bodies and human remains, they rescued around 15 people who were chained up in captivity. That were just living? Yeah. With all of these dead bodies? Yes. Oh my god. Holy shit. Just surrounded by dead bodies. Oh. Yeah. Um, so they were chained up in captivity, all severely malnourished, looking like living skeletons surrounded by clouds of flies, and some of them in a catatonic state or barely alive. Yeah. So, um, hold on. When questioned by the police, they spoke of having been kidnapped, tortured, and kept in shackles with once-a-week feedings. In most cases, they could not identify the people who had taken them. But a few claimed that the men who had kidnapped them had been gov- government officials, or at least posing as them. Okay. Um, some of the victims said that they had been there in squalor and chained up for months. One of them, I don't know if I actually wrote it in here, but one of them had been held victim for seven years. Oh, how did he live? How did he survive? It was just not her turn. Which is also kind of reverts it back to thinking that this was for rituals. Like, nobody needed her specific, her specifically for a ritual. But one elder lady um, was there for seven years. Wow. Yeah. Um, The general impression was that this had been going on for quite some time. And in the meantime, the police were called... And the entire area was blocked off and an investigation was launched trying to get to the bottom of what happened and who the perpetrators were. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I was watching a, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Documentary about this from a really good source on YouTube. I do have it, it listed in here. And... This all started because a motorcyclist was called by some random person was like, you need to meet me in the Soka Forest right now. Um, And he's like, okay, well, I need to go drop my friend off. And then I'm going to call my friend to meet me there. Mm -hmm. So he went and dropped his friend off and went to the Soka Forest. And his third friend was supposed to come and meet him at the forest. Well, when this friend came to meet him, he was gone. And... 
he was like, this is, this is not okay. And then the next day they found his bike in the river and they're like, oh no. And that's what started this entire search party. And part of it was that they were calling his phone and while they were on the grounds with this horrific scene, they were calling him and he was answering. He's like, I can hear people walking above me. I'm buried underground somewhere. Oh my God. And so everybody starts digging, but then the police show up and they never found him. <gasps> no. Yeah. So it it's insane that like this has been happening. And from the photos, there's these buildings over here. I'm trying to think of an area that like, think of like the trailer park. All right. Mm-hmm. And do you know where um, Quarry Ridge is? Yes. That distance away. Okay. So Quarry Ridge being the town mm-hmm. and the green and um, the, trailer the, park being the forest with the buildings within spitting distance. You could see the town from these buildings. That's insane. Yeah. But it's crazy just how they came together. So, an investigation was launched, and most of the bodies that were found could not be identified. And this caused an outrage among the locals who were looking for missing loved ones and increasingly spreading rumors that the ritual killings had been ordered by an affluent Nigerian in high positions of power. Mm-hmm. In order to harness supernatural powers. In the days after the discovery of what was being called the Ibadan Forest of Horrors, crowds of rioters, angry at a lack of anything being done, seeking answers to identify the victims, and even some convinced that more people were trapped underground, converged on the scene, brandishing guns clubs, machetes, and bows and arrows to the point that police were forced to disperse them with tear gas. Wow. Like, I can definitely understand the outrage, but... So, we are going to get there. Okay. But, um, some of the people that were found still alive, half of them, like, ran off. If they still had the ability, they took off as soon as they were freed. Mm -hmm. The ones that stayed, um, they were captured from all over provinces away hours and hours of driving away countries away not con- like still within africa well africa's a country. Uh, sorry <laughs> yes um so i guess yeah um okay like they were from all over africa okay wow yeah that's insane. So you got to think, like, anybody who has anybody missing is going to show up and be like, Where's my loved one? Where's their body? Like, hmm So the one lady that was there for seven years, she was a 10-hour car ride away mm-hmm. from where she was, she went missing. Yeah. It's insane. Yes. So arising from the wickedness that infiltrated the place and the horrors discovered there, it had become very unsafe for anyone, especially news crews, to visit. For instance, Vanguard Metro was entering the godforsaken large expense of land when confronted by some mean looking men who threatened in a rough voice, we will kill you, we will finish you. 
going there without security protection is equivalent to suicide. Mm-hmm. They're angry. Well, understandably so. If this has been going on for years. How long? Yeah. So two media men were attacked. Mr. Felix Ademola, a photojournalist with This Day newspaper, was rough handled by overzealous policemen, while Bio Feleke, a presenter with Splash FM, was beaten by a mob and had his car badly damaged. The visibly angry and suspicious people could either be relatives of the missing persons or residents who have grown tired of reporting the dreaded place to the security agencies. Mm-hmm. They felt the current response was rather overdue, given their numerous complaints before now. Mm-hmm. The land, which is in the heart of the sprawling city of Ibadan, was found covered with several decomposing bodies of human beings who were unlucky to fall prey to the heartless ritualists. The experience of entering the place immediately conjures the impression of a horror film. Mm-hmm. A special assistant to Governor Abiola Ajimobi, who was on the entourage of the governor, suggested to a colleague that the governor himself needed to see the decomposing bodies. Yeah. I totally understand where that guy's coming from. Like, until... like It's one thing for people, like even us, to talk about the crimes that we do but until you see it even pictures don't do it justice you have to be there Mm -hmm. and to understand the full implications and scope of what has been done totally totally yep um so indeed the bodies were scattered all over the place only forensic experts would be able to identify whatever bodies they could. Um, but all that was left were bones of different shapes and sizes, except those who survived. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, no one at the time could even determine gender of some of these people. Sorry, what year is this? 2016-2014. Like, just think how badly mutilated they were that you couldn't even tell a gender. Well, yeah. That is insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, apart from the numerous dead bodies, school uniforms, women's underwear, a pair of security boots, several pairs of shoes, baby wares, thousands of clothes littered the place, especially in the big hall and open field. Mm-hmm. The place attracted thousands of people from across the country whose relatives were missing. Yeah. And when Governor... Ajimobi got to the scene. He tried to calm the crowd of angry individuals who laid siege to the place, pleading for patience and attention. He explained that the visit was to sympathize with the families of those who have lost their loved ones to the kidnappers and to get to the root of the incident and get all these suspects arrested. Mm -hmm. He then said, the reason why we came here today was because of an ugly incident that happened. We were informed that you, the residents, did not know what was happening here as you did not know. So we, so pretty much he's like telling them that they had no idea what was happening right under their noses. But they were saying that these people are going missing. We were saying that they're gone and you guys are saying, well, they just left. Yeah. There wasn't an investigation done. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If you who live in the neighborhood did not know, 
then how can we who live far away know? But we thank God for exposing all of these horrors. All those who did these horrific things, God would expose them. We whom you have entrusted the government of this state through your votes, God will use us to punish the culprits. As you say, amen. God will use us to reform the state. If we would not reform it, God should deny us getting their governorship seat. As from today, try to be vigilant. I have learned a lesson from this. Anywhere we are, let us be very vigilant and not hesitate to report matters like this to the security agencies. His speech was, however, intermittently interrupted by several voices claiming that many reports of what was going on there were made out without a corresponding response from concerned authorities. Interesting how that happens when you do not listen or follow up. Yeah. So, Governor Ajimobi then revoked the certificate of occupancy of the land, promising that all the victims alleged to have been hiding in underground tunnels will be found when we dig the when we dig up the whole place. Residents in the area loudly applauded the governor's decision to revoke the hundreds of hectares of land. He then told people to observe a minute of silence for the victims. Okay. Did one thing right. One thing. Well, said one thing right. Said one thing right. So, here are some of the survivors' accounts. Okay. After much resistance, the hospital officials and security men at the Adeo State Hospital, Ibadan, grudgingly allowed some newsmen a few minutes to have a chat with some of the survivors, but they were refused to take any photos. That makes sense. Yes. I understand that. While speaking with some of the survivors, whose names are Nafiu Shiru, Michael Ola, Miss Titi Adeni, Ni, Dok, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, Dokpasi and Whale Atiobi, indications emerged that they were victims of hoodlums who capitalized on urban renewal initiative of the government by arresting some hawkers under the pretext that they violated the environmental law, even though they did not have the authority of the government to do it. Mm-hmm. So, Nafiu Shidu, who spoke with VM which was one of the news crews, was able to recall how he fell victim to these undesirable people. He said he was selling his herbal medicines at a goatee gate when some men swooped on him and forced him into a waiting car. I was sitting there at the goatee gate area of Ibadan when some people just swooped in on me, rushed me into a vehicle. I had been in that place for four months in the forest. We might not be given food for a whole week and people were dying, he said. So. He was selling herbal medicine and somebody just slammed him into a car. Yes, that's, that is definitely awful. I'm just curious now. So were these people being chained up and left to starve to death and then being mutilated or were they alive or was it a combination? Maybe a combination. Okay. Because you got to think that one lady was there for years. So they obviously had to give her enough substance, substance, sustenance um, to keep her alive. So I don't know if starving them was their goal. Okay. But I do feel like that might have been just a 
just an unfortunate side effect of the conditions they were in. Dying from strife. And lack of fucks to give from Yes. The captors. Okay. Right? So another victim who is a woman claimed she was related to the late chief Obafemi, a Wolowo family, Miss Titi, said she was picked up at the front of her house and forced into a vehicle and later found herself in the forest. Mm-hmm. She said, I am from the compound of the late Baba Awolto mm-hmm. of Oak Bola in Ibadan. Some people came and kidnapped me while I was sitting in front of my house. Nobody was around then. My people were in Lagos, and they said I was wanted somewhere, and they came to arrest me. They then took me away in their vehicle, and then I found myself in the forest. Mm -hmm. She said she could never tell if people were being killed in the forest by the kidnappers, or if women were giving birth. She never knew. There's just so many screaming. Yeah. So much screaming. Yeah. So there was so much screaming. That wherever she was kept, she just covered her head with cloth and would try to sleep. Mm-hmm. Another victim in the hospital, Mr. Whale from Ada in Osun State, also confirmed he was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. All of the victims denied the claims that they were mentally deranged and that they were being taken care of in the den by some Samaritans. So they were not. No. Nobody was coming in and feeding them. No. And they were mentally sound. Yes. One of the nurses said the survivors responded to treatment. According to her, they have improved tremendously since they were brought here. When they arrived here, they were smelling awfully. Some of us had to bathe and wash them while some Samaritans donated clothing. What? Well, no shit. They were living in hell. Yeah. No one truly knows why these people were brought to the forest, but it has been guessed that this has been operating for around 10 years. Mm-hmm. The victims claimed that there were new captives being brought every day. Oh my god. Now the question many people have was why no one, not even the neighbors nearby, alerted the authorities to people's cries. Yeah, if it's they're screaming so loud that like you can hear it from how far away. Yep. Well, these people were very good at setting rumors. Oh. All right. That's where you might have been with the paranormal? No. No? No. Oh, okay. This, this one's all on me. Okay. Um, the warehouse and surrounding area was believed to be a mental institution. Oh. Which is how they targeted their victims as well. I see. That's also why they were asked if they were mentally stable. Yeah. So nobody's going to question a mental institution for screaming at night. No. Well, they're not. And nobody's going to go up there. See, I would have been like, this is a haunted-ass forest. Be prepared. <laughs> yep. But that makes sense. That's a fairly good cover. Right? Mm-hmm. So... When the governor, Ajimobi, sent his forensic crew in to start going through the site, a company had already come in and started to demolish all of the buildings, hindering all of the evidence. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, two weeks later. Are you for real? Yep. But they're gonna get caught, God willing. Somebody. It wasn't the government. 
quote unquote, mm-hmm. went and demolished the buildings before they could start their forensic search. Fuck sakes. Yeah, there's definitely something going on at a higher level. So, police would later make several arrests in connection with the slaughter of Soka Forest, including some suspects who were policemen and security guards, but no one was ultimately charged with the murders, and the case is ongoing. Mm-hmm. It seems amazing that such an unbelif- unbelievably horrific crime could have been carried out near such an urban area in a reasonably rich nation, and yet it remains unsolved. This has sparked much speculation that officials and police were somehow involved in the ritual killings and trade in human body parts that has sadly gripped many areas areas of Nigeria. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of money to be made from the sale of body parts mm-hmm. for various black magic rituals, spells, potions, and although the Ibadan Forest of Horrors is an extreme case... Such similar killings are not unheard of. I have heard of that before, and I've looked into that a little bit. So that does not shock me at all. You know what? I would love you to cover um, albino. I was thinking about it, and I might get there eventually. Because those are wild. Those are. So in many rural areas, the belief in magic is still very strong, and many... Poor people turn in to the trade in body parts to support their families, turning into murderers in order to serve various shamans and herbalists who very often convince them that they are at the whim of magical forces and they cannot comprehend. Mm-hmm. The answer to what exactly happened here is this p- in this patch of wilderness has not been made completely clear. It is unknown just who took these people or where they went. No one has been officially charged with any of it, and it seems they have just been written off as yet another ritual killing spree in a country where such things are rampant. It is very likely that this is where it will end for the case, and it illustrates a very interesting trend that has gone on even into the present day in some rural areas that such superstitions and myths can gain such a foothold in the age of reason, in otherwise progressive countries. There seems to be some allure to the idea of black magic and the dark arts that will not fade and which hides in the dark corners of the world, where any whether any of it is real or not, for the people dead and abused at the hands of these captors is very real as it is for many of the locals of these areas for whom dark magic and rituals are part of the landscape of every day. So with this case, there is a 40-minute documentary, and it is done by True Crime Daniel, and it's called The Ibadan Forest of Horror Documentary, and it is amazing. Okay, I'm definitely going to have to check it out. 100%. It it gives you so much detail and it gives you so much information. And when I was looking online, there was a lot of it from the government perspective. The government found these people. The government saved the captors. But like, no, it was a group of people living from the city who were looking for their fucking friend Mm -hmm. who they never found. Rabbit hole. And it went so dark so quick and but i was like this is so interesting and 
it needs to be talked about. Yeah. (laughs) So that is the story of the Ibadan Forest of Horror. Well, it was very horrific. That was, like, unbelievable. I can't believe I haven't heard of that before. Yeah. That's wild. It is disgusting. Honestly, hundreds of bodies being found and not one person arrested. Come on. Yeah, well, the fact that the buildings were demolished two weeks after. Right? Like, okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Oh, so angry. Oh, wow. What a ride. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that wraps us up for F. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to C is for Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for creepy. Or on Facebook at C is for creepy podcast. Or on Instagram at C for creepy podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, please email us at C for creepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at L-E-X-X-A underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.